Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church, North Adelaide. You can find more great things like this at citylight.church slash North Adelaide. All right, welcome. Woo, welcome back, everyone. Hopefully we can continue these conversations uh, after the service. Before uh, Simon or Jacko, as most of you guys will know him, stands up to give the message, we'll just be reading from the Old and the New Testament. And before I do that, I just want to give a shout out to Miriam and Susanna, who will be very embarrassed for me to do this, I'm sure. But thank you so much, you guys, for decorating the church. It's nice to not have a building completely stuck in the 70s or 60s. Um, but yeah, they uh, they did great with Easter uh, this last year, and uh, it, I'm so thankful that we have also Christmas decorations as well. So thank you guys for that. What's next? That's the question. We look forward to seeing Easter of 2023. All right. So um, today we are going to be reading from Malachi. Um, and am I wrong, Jacko? Is this the last of the minor prophets? Oh, the last one. Um, so yeah, have a have a read through Malachi, guys. And um, we'll be getting into a new series next week. But we'll be reading from Malachi in the Old Testament and then Galatians in the New. So first passage is Malachi 1, 1 through 5. And I'll be reading of the NIV that you guys will find at the end of your pews. So Malachi 1, 1 through 5. An oracle, the word of the Lord of Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, the Lord says? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated, and I have turned his mountains into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say... Though we have been crushed, we will build the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, Great is the Lord, even even beyond the borders of Israel. The second passage we're reading is coming from Galatians 2, 11 through 21. So Galatians 2, 11 through 21. When Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he was clearly in the wrong. But before men from, came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then when you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? We who are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners know that a man is not justified by observing the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we might might be justified by faith in Christ and not by observing the law, Because by observing the law, no one will be justified. If while we seek to be justified in Christ, it becomes evident that we ourselves are sinners, does that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, I prove that I am a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The faith I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. 
I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Amen. around here. Oh, hey, there we go. Uh, lead pastor here at City Light Church, North Adelaide. Um, before I get into the word this morning, just a couple of things from me. Uh, just with Christmas coming up, uh, just reminded by Fiona, uh, two key gatherings for us at Christmas time this year. So the 18th of December, Sunday morning, 10am, we're going to have our carol service here. Um, Miriam and Susanna kind of gave me the heads up that they might tweak the decorations a little bit as the month goes on. So maybe when you turn up for that, it'll just be green everywhere. Like it'll just be this green cave that we come into. No, anyway, um, 10th, 18th of December, carols here. Uh, mixture of singing carols, hearing the Bible, some Bible readings. Uh, the kids are going to put on a nativity play for us, short message, etc. So invite your friends. It'll be a good morning um, and some tasty treats to enjoy together. Uh, then the 25th, which is Christmas Day, oh my goodness, as if it's Christmas, uh, 9am here in the morning for a Christmas Day gathering, so I hope you can come to those. Um, also, I just thought I'd let you know, uh, I, um, after Freedom Sunday last week, where we highlighted the work of International Justice Mission, I jumped on a plane headed to the Sunshine Coast, uh, to Coolum, um, for work. I did, really I did. I went to work, uh, in Coolum, it's like near Noosa, terrible part of Australia, um, horrible weather, terrible beaches, all that. Um, I was invited up uh, to go and help at a small conference there with a ministry called Uni Impact. Um, we've had a couple of visits from Uni Impact during this year. Uh, they're a campus, university campus-based ministry, similar to ES, um, AFES ministry, where they're seeking to reach uh, university-age people with the good news of Jesus. And uh, their particular focus is working in residential colleges, uh, so university residential colleges. Um, and they've been thinking, they're based in Queensland, uh, and they've been thinking about starting up a ministry here in Adelaide, particularly with a focus on the residential university colleges that are in our suburb. Uh, the, and so I was invited up to kind of keep the conversation going as to what it might look like for us here at North Adelaide, who have a heart and continue to have a heart to reach the residential college students with the good news of Jesus, to maybe form a partnership. Um, so I wasn't just sitting on a beach, uh, you know, getting a tan. Um, I was helping out in the conference, but also continuing some discussions about what that might look like. Um, we've made no commitments. It was just like getting to know each other a bit better and seeing where things go. So if you're a praying type, uh, we are keen to keep the gospel going out into all people in our mission zone. Um, one of those things that continues to be on our heart is residential college students. And so, um, yeah, pray for that. Pray for what that relationship might look like um, down the track. Um, we will get to the Bible in a minute. Um, I sort of, I just, I love books, you know that. Um, and I just finished reading a little book a little while ago called Tears and Tossings, Hope in the Waves of Life. Uh, by Sarah Walton. It's a tiny book, really small book. I love little books. feel like, you know, you can crush through them really fast. But this one was just a really lovely little book about keeping on following the Lord Jesus, even when you're in the midst of tears and ups and downs of life. 
Um, so I can highly recommend that, uh, particularly if you're like me and you're not good at waiting for things, you're impatient. Um, I found this book really helpful. hasn't solved my problems, um, but a little bit. I've been encouraged to keep trusting Jesus. So uh, Tears and Tossings, Hope in the Waves of Life by Sarah Walton. Get your hands on that if you are into that. Um, turn to the person next to you. Uh, you know how this rolls. Um, you know the expression, don't judge a book by its cover. Don't judge a book by its cover. I want you to turn to the person next to you and confess to them when was the last time you judged the book by its cover. You know what I mean? It may not be a book, but someone, something by its cover, only to be surprised that it was really good. Yeah? Turn to the person next to you, see what you can come up with. Don't judge a book by its cover. When was the last time you did that? We were surprised how good it was. Go, I'll give you 35.8 seconds. Go. Hey. Oh yeah, look, it's what twenty years does to you, you're right? It's me. Looks like Adele. <laughs> All right, let's come back together. Keep that in the back of your mind as we come to God's Word this morning. As we mentioned, yeah, we're at the final installment of our series, Books We Don't Read, as we've been working our way through the 12 minor prophets over the last uh, few months. Um, and I think it's uh, there have been times along the way where I've gone, why did we do this? Um, there's some pretty heavy stuff going on, but I think it's been good for us as a community to um, get our heads into the Old Testament again, uh, to work our way through these 12 books we don't often come to. Um, often we're freaked out a bit by the 12 minor prophets. Um, and But just good to be confronted again with... Uh, the desperate need of God's people for his grace, uh, the wonderful 
hope that is part of the gospel that one day God will come to sort out everything, uh, to judge the living and the dead, to sort out the world and to rid the world of sin so that the new creation can be that place of flourishing and goodness forever and ever. And so I think it's been good for us to be reminded of those things, albeit maybe confused at times and hard as we've worked our way through this unfamiliar part of God's word. But how about we pray as we come to, as some people call him, Malachi, the only Italian prophet, which is not true, um, Malachi, uh, the last of the 12, in terms of how they ordered in our Bible. So Father, we thank you and praise you for bringing us uh, to this place at this time on this day. Lord, thank you that Father, we can totally trust you. Father, we thank you that you have spoken and revealed yourself in many and varied ways throughout history. Uh, But Father, we thank you. Yeah, thank you, Father, for the way you've revealed yourself and your plans and purposes uh, through these prophets. Thank you, Father, for revealing yourself most clearly through the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, thank you, Father, for life in Jesus And we pray now as we do study your word together, we pray that we would hear Jesus, we pray that by your spirit we would see Jesus, and that Father, this morning, remind us of your deep, deep love for us, and Lord, help us each to respond to that love in lives of godliness and holiness and hope. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I'm sure most of us have heard that phrase, don't judge a book by its cover. Um, for those of us who are a little bit unfamiliar with that expression, according to Dr. Google, here it is, it's a proverb implying that outward appearances are not, are not a reliable indication of the true character of someone or something. Um, I genuinely try to live by the principle to not judge a book by its cover, to not judge somebody by its cover, Uh, But sometimes I don't. Um, And when it came to this particular book coming up on the screen by counsellor and speaker Paul Tripp, Lost in the Middle, Midlife and the Grace of God, I bought that book a long time ago, but I hate the cover. And so for a long time I was like, I'm not going to read it. I think Tripp's a good writer. I think he's got some interesting things to say often. I just thought there's something about the cover which I just did not like at all. So it remained on my bookshelf gathering dust for a very long time until I got over my own issues with, you know, graphic design and things like that. And I read it recently and it's actually a terrific book. It's really great. Um, and just to be clear, I didn't pull it off the shelf, lost in the middle, midlife and the grace of God, because I'm in some kind of midlife crisis. Um, you could talk to Adele. She might argue that maybe I am. Um, and nor did I actually read it because I am in midlife. I don't think midlife will ever happen to me. It'll just keep going up and up and up until, you know, whatever. Um, I came across it, though, um, because, yeah, well, maybe I am entering middle age. Um, you know what they say, midlife is when your um, your broad mind and your narrow waist begin to change places. You heard that one before? Um, the section in Paul Tripp's book really struck me. And has echoed in my mind ever since I read it. And I think it's a really good introduction to the book of Malachi. Um, Tripp writes this. It's coming up on the screen for us. I've been very impressed, Tripp says, throughout the years by how the Bible gets functionally sidelined in the lives of struggling people. They're all committed believers in the word of God. They've not denied their faith and the truthfulness of scripture. But in times of personal suffering, difficulty, crisis, the Bible suddenly becomes functionally irrelevant. 
The way they think about what is going on in their lives is not dynamically shaped and directed by the overarching story of Scripture. When Scripture is functionally sidelined, they begin to lose their identity, ethics, mission and values. It simply doesn't seem to speak to their present game. Yes, they all believe that it speaks to life in a general way and that what it says is true, but there's a huge gap between the words on the pages of Scripture and the painful details of their lives. I don't know about you, but I I know about that. I've been there. I've been there on more than the occasions that I'd actually like to admit. I've let the Bible at times become functionally irrelevant, and I know that I'm not alone. And in a way, it's a good place to begin our time in the Old Testament book of Malachi, in this final in our series of books we don't read. For God's people in Malachi's time hadn't let the Bible become functionally irrelevant, as we might. It was almost worse. They'd let the covenant that they had with the living God become functionally irrelevant, and has become the spiritual equivalent, and they've become the spiritual equivalent of grumpy old men and women. Seven times in the four short chapters of the book of Malachi, the people turn on God. They demand that God give an account of himself and what he's doing in the world. So you see these examples in chapter 1, verse 2. They ask these questions. How have you loved us? Chapter 1, verse 2. 1, 6. How have we despised your name? Chapter 1, verse 7. How have we defiled you? In this last book of the Old Testament, we see some of the attitudes and the mindset which characterizes believers in every age. That presumption that tries to tell God how to do his job, combined with doubt, that questions his power and his goodness. Malachi is a good book for people in the spiritual doldrums, for those who've grown a bit half-hearted or mechanical in their faith. Coming at the end of the Old Testament, anticipating the new, it's a book for people who maybe feel like they're in those transition stages of life, the waiting room periods, wondering what the past was all really about and whether the future really is going to be worth it. It's a good book for people whose faith is, well, not what it once was, who've grown a bit weary, become a little bit cynical, maybe a little careless. It's a good book for people faced with social and economic and even spiritual depression. Our times, times when it feels like the dream hasn't really materialized, when God's not quite delivering, and when the passion of our spiritual youth has decayed into, I don't know, mid-life spiritual inertia. Well, that's Malachi. And we really... All we really know about Malachi, by the way, the prophet, is found in verse 1. It's his name. That's all. Malachi, which simply means my messenger. And then we find out about his task. Um, have a look at verse 1. Uh, a prophecy. A prophecy. In the ESV, the Eastern Suburbs version, it's like oracle. More literally, it's burden. Here's a man burdened by the Lord to pass on a message to his people. His message, well, at the heart, The heart of his message is a deep call to spiritual renewal, covenant renewal. 
If you glance forward to chapter 3, verse 7 of the book of Malachi, if you want a really good summary of the whole book of Malachi, he says this, Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. It's the heart of the book. Return to me. You've abandoned the covenant. Come back to me. The Lord says, return to me, and I'll return to you. But even then, the grumblers hear that, and they're kind of come at him with their tetchy questions. How? How shall we return to you? See, Malachi's writing about 450 years before Christ. He's in Israel. God's people have returned from the exile in Babylon. They're back in Judah. They've reoccupied the city of Jerusalem. They've rebuilt the walls. They've rebuilt the temple. You can read all about that and the story of that in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, something to do this afternoon. Um, Some of the great men and women of the faith who've given so much, they've now gone, time has passed, and not much has really happened in the life of the community. The temple building, by the way, is a little bit third-rate compared to Solomon's temple. Frankly, the new one looks like a caravan park cabin in comparison. The tentacles of the Persian Empire, the Babylonians are still there. There's no real freedom. The enemies look strong. They're confident. They're poised. And the promised kingdom of David has not yet arrived. God doesn't seem to be doing anything. They feel forgotten. They feel let down. And they begin to do exactly what we do often in hard times. They begin to question God's love and his power and his promises. Can't he see? Doesn't God care? Why is this happening to us, his people? Why is this happening to me, his child? Sure, Malachi has some really hard things to say. And you'll find that if you keep reading and studying Malachi after today. He has hard things to say about people who'd grown careless in worship, people who were indifferent to the truth, disobedient to the covenant, faithless in their marriages, people who'd grown stingy in their giving. But that's not where he starts his burden. I don't know, we might have expected as Malachi gets going, some kind of like prophetic blast. Instead, it's a wonderful word of reassurance, of indestructible covenant love. Like a father, he says in verse 2, I have loved you. That's right up front in Malachi. It's the first word on his lips. question i want to ask though is why is god's message a burden here why is it a burden well i think firstly it's because the word of god is always really weighty always serious i don't mean dull or boring the word of god is never boring it can be communicated in kind of boring ways what i mean by burden and weighty is that it's substantial this is no mirage this is the truth this is reality this matters And that's why we bother here at City Light Church with the word Sunday after Sunday. It's why we encourage people in our church community to be reading the word daily. It's why we've put together an Advent Bible reading guide, which you can get as you go out on the way out. It's why our DGs, our small groups, are all about getting around the word together. Because the word of God matters. But secondly, because it often makes us uncomfortable even when it's good news. Even when it's good news, the good news can be rejected by many people. 
And even Christians right are sometimes resistant. We're angry, we get grumpy, we get cross when we come across something in God's word that makes us feel uncomfortable. Malachi says things that will make some of us here cross and uncomfortable. But not surely today, if we're looking at God's love, I'm not sure. I have loved you, says God. Yeah, right. Yeah, right. Says a suffering person here. That's my rough paraphrase of verse 2. How have you loved us? I have loved you, says the Lord. Yeah, right. Have you seen my life? I'm sure someone here this morning, as a believer in pain, will be asking that very question. And the answer, well, the answer God gives at first glance is a little bit baffling. But here is God's statement to the believer. If you're a believer, if you're a Christian here this morning, God says the same thing to you. No matter how much pain you may have to endure, no matter how much humiliation you may feel you've suffered, God says to you and to me, as he said to his people back in the 450 year BC, I have loved you. You are the object of an unshakable divine affection. Would you believe that? The heckler's question still remains, how have you loved us? And in a kind of perplexing answer, God through Malachi unfolds the love of God in a way that leaves us silent and stunned. It's what is sometimes called the doctrine of unconditional election. God's free and sovereign electing love of some and its counterpart of God's passing over others, leaving them to sin and condemnation. It's not an easy thing to preach on. Done it a few times. But when you preach through the New Testament, it's not just an Old Testament thing. When you preach through the New Testament, it's hard not to speak about unconditional election. God's love for some and passing over others. Um, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 4. Look them up later. God shows us in him before the creation of the world. 2 Timothy 1 verse 9. He has saved us, called us to a holy life, not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. And then the great Romans 8 verse 30, those he predestined, he called. Keep finding it everywhere in the New Testament. Election is what the late great Jim Packer called the family secret of the children of God. Something they have a right to know and for their good they ought to know. And yet, here is something, unconditional election. Here is something that's meant to make us Christians humble and confident and joyful and active and yet which can tragically be propagated in a way that instead makes us proud and presumptuous, complacent and even lazy. Strong meat, writes Packer, nourishing to those who can take it but acutely indigestible to those whose spiritual system is out of order. And you know what, like when we come to this idea of unconditional election, I've always thought like, you know, unconditional election, this big doctrine, 
That's only for mature believers, right? You know, people who are well-established in their faith, people who can stomach it. But here, Malachi isn't talking to the mature. He's talking to worldly people. I've not really seen that before. God's people had become skeptical and careless and a bit disobedient, adulterous. They'd become stingy. And it's to these people that Malachi preaches the truth of God's free and sovereign electing love in terms more bold and more unmistakable, perhaps than anywhere else in the Old Testament. So I stand corrected. Yes, these truths are for the comfort and courage of the mature, but they're also for the grumblers to shock us, perhaps, from maybe the place where we're a bit flippant and careless as followers of Jesus, whose grasp of God's love has become shallow. You know, the solution to so many of our spiritual, dare I say it, our psychological problems of believers, lies not in simplistic kind of pad answers, but in deep theology. And that's where Malachi starts. So what sort of answer is this to how have you loved us question? The yeah, right, whatever, heckle. We've had the pronouncement. What about the proof? Well, it's good to hear God answer the question, yeah, isn't it? It's not the kind of answer you'll likely hear from a counsellor if you were to see one today. Have a look at Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Here's God's answer. I have loved you, God says. The crowd goes, yeah, right. How have you loved us? Here's God's answer. Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I've turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackal. God here poses a question to which every Israelite would have immediately known the answer. And it's a question which takes us close to the heart, close to the essence of God's love. And you're looking at the answer on the screen going, how? Like, was Esau Jacob's brother? Was Esau Jacob's brother? Great, thank you. Yes, of course he was. He was his twin. Their mother was Rebecca. Their father was Isaac. Yes. You can read the story in Genesis chapter 25. Two boys and behind each of them a symbolic headship, right? Two tribes, two peoples from two regions, Judah and Edom. They had bad blood between them, right? Running right back to the very time that Jacob cheated his brother out of his father's blessing. You probably know that. Not only were these two twin, they were twin boys, Esau was the elder of the brothers, right? So meaning it was customary that Esau would be the the one who would receive the inheritance, um, the privileges, the rights, etc. But guess what Esau did? Esau sold his inheritance for a bowl of lentil soup. I mean, who really likes lentils anyway? No, I shouldn't say that. I've already basically said I hate tofu. I don't really hate tofu. But lentils, you know, like, anyway, he just, he just said, no, oh, you can have the inheritance, just I need some of those lentils. Do you see the impact of this, right? Two twin boys, same parents, same gene pool, same um, background, same start in life, same opportunities, both flawed, no good works on their resume by either of them. And before they're born, though, 
God, in his perfect love, chooses one of them. It has nothing to do with their parents, their potential, their behavior, or their faith. Two lives have an equal claim on God's choosing that is no claim at all. And God chooses Jacob unconditionally. God says, yet I have loved Jacob. And God decided the destiny of these two sons and of the nations they represent before they were even born. Don't misunderstand me. This doesn't contradict the truth that Scripture holds out very clearly. It doesn't contradict the truth Jacob and Esau and you and me, we make choices in life and we'll be held responsible for those choices. If Jacob is saved, he will be saved by faith. If Esau is finally condemned, he'll be condemned for his unbelief. Our final judgment will align with the way we've responded to Jesus and the good news of the gospel in this life. To be finally saved, we must have believed. To be lost, we must have kept sinning and not believed. No one will stand before God on that judgment day and be able to say, I don't deserve this. An unconditional election does not contradict the necessity of obedience of faith for final salvation. But what unconditional election stresses, what it does for us is knock from underneath salvation every single ground of human boasting and to replace it simply with the electing love and purpose of God. And this is Paul's point. This is the Apostle Paul's point in the magnificent Romans chapter 9 where he quotes this verse and explains it. It's worth looking at together. Come with me to Romans chapter 8 if you want. Keep a finger in Malachi if you want to do that. Um, we all know the amazing words of Romans chapter 8 verse 28. Incredible comfort Romans chapter 8 verse 28 and following for struggling Christians. Paul says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him who've been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? But then Romans 9, right, introduces this really important new section in Romans. There's this nagging doubt, which we haven't got time now to unpack um, this morning, about the whole role of God's original people, Israel, God's chosen people. Here's the problem. If God doesn't keep his promises to his chosen people, Israel, will he keep them for you and for me? That's the problem. This is what Paul's grappling with in this letter and for anyone whose eternal security hangs on the faithfulness of God. Romans 9 verse 8, right? It's to the children of promise. They're Abraham's true offspring. But who are they? Who are Abraham's true offspring? From verse 10, Paul spells it out. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins, yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, 
the older will serve the younger. And here's Malachi, just as it was written, Jacob I love, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. There it is. Sovereign grace, which owes us nothing, calls us for reasons hidden in the unfathomable mind of God to know him and to live for his glory. You know, my salvation is not based on what I think or what I feel or what I've done. It's not based on my capacity or my potential. It's not based on my performance. It's not based in God's foreseen guess that I might be the right type to be a religious person one day. It's nothing to do with any of that. Nothing. It's based on God alone. The one who calls and chooses. The Election assures you that the roots of your salvation, the roots of God's almighty commitment to save you are not shallow but run deep into his love for you in eternity past and in eternity ahead. And we'll never experience the fullness of God's love until we grasp what it truly means to be freely chosen by God on the basis of nothing in us. But back to Malachi 1, if you flick back to Malachi, what about that second phrase? Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Jars a bit, doesn't it? It sort of shocks. It's like, can we just remove that from the scriptures? It doesn't sit right. Sounds kind of arbitrary and so unfair. It seems counterintuitive. Counterintuitive. God hating somebody, it can't be right. Let's put in stark terms so that we don't miss the point. It's a bit like Jesus, right, when he says in Luke chapter 14, if anyone would come after me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. It's about choice. It's about an unconditional commitment. Hate here equates to reject. We shouldn't bring our sort of modern psychological concepts to this. This is not an emotion God feels as much as an action that he carries out. Don't ask me to explain it fully. I can't. It's a paradox that troubled the Apostle Paul. It's a a paradox that troubles many thoughtful disciples. God loves the whole world and yet at the same time withholds his love in action, withholds his election of some. But you know what the baffling thing is? The baffling thing is not that God saves some of us. The baffling thing is that God saves any of us at all. Let me repeat that. The baffling thing is not that God saves some of us, but that he would save any of us at all. And in the life of Esau, God has been kind and gracious to Esau. Given him a large family, it grew into a nation, the nation of Edom. God gave them a land in the south. He'd given them protection and prosperity, even deliverance on some occasions. Um, Israel were commanded not to hate the Edomites because they were their brothers. 
And yet verses 4 and 5 of Malachi 1, we are meant to leave us in no doubt that God chooses to give that people up to wickedness. And their unrepentant defiance of verse 4, we will rebuild, is actually met with judgment and wrath in verse 5. I don't doubt, actually, that there were some among the Edomites who trusted the Lord, who trusted Yahweh, you know, just as much as mere membership of ethnic Israel was no guarantee of being part of God's people, what mattered was that you were part of the children of promise. And that was God's decision. God demonstrates his love for his people, according to Malachi, not only in electing love, but also here in Malachi in the ultimate destruction of their enemies. Edom is gone. So God loves his people, he chooses his people, he also shows how much he loves them and cares for them by destroying all their enemies, ultimately. Edom goes. Anyone been to Edom? Anyone travelled to Petra overseas, that amazing place? My mum and dad are travelling through Jordan, and they're on the Nile right now in Egypt. How lovely. And they went to Petra. I'm on the phone, I'm WhatsApping my mum. In fact, my mum's WhatsApping me. I'm like, since when did you discover WhatsApp, Mum? You're ancient. No, I don't. Um, I said, oh, she go, oh, we went to Petra. It was amazing. And I said, oh, do you know, that's Edom. That's where Edom was. And she had, like, I couldn't see her face, but I think she went, what? <laughs> but Edom's gone. But you wouldn't know. A guy named T.V. Moore, a 19th century commentator, puts it like this. The lonely solitudes of Petra now remain as monuments to the fact that God's words never fail. God promised to destroy his people's enemies. Edom is no more. Well, there's the opening five verses to Malachi. It's not that easy. But it's a word to shaky believers who've grown insensitive to the love of God. I have loved you, says God to the Christian. How? By choosing you. But why me? Why did you choose me? It all seems so arbitrary. It's probably a question that every Christian will ask at some point in time. Why me? And Malachi's point and the Apostle Paul's point is that there is no answer to that question. Jacob and Esau confirm that and illustrate it. What answer can you give? Like, think about it for a minute. God chose me because I fill in the blank. What would you say? You can get behind unconditional election to God's love, but you can't get behind God's love, right? Because God's love is the ultimate reality. You can't go behind the love of God to something more logical, something more rational. It's the summit. It's the peak, the first cause. It's the source. It's who God is, love. And if you're wondering at this moment, here on a Sunday morning, on the 4th of December, following the devastating defeat of the Socceroos at the hands of those wretched Argentinians, if you're from Argentina, welcome. It's lovely to have you here this morning. Um, But if you're sitting here this morning and you've got, who's this guy, Jacko? He's talking about Malachi. He's talking about unconditional election. He's talking about God's love. And you're kind of going, oh my goodness, like what's going on? I just want to go to bed. If you're wondering at this moment, am I elect? Am I one of God's people? 
that's running through your mind, here's how you know. There's one question. Do I have Christ? Do you see Jesus as the one who came into the world to lay his life down for your sins so that you can be reconnected to God? Do you see Jesus as central to your life? Sufficient to save you from your sins. Sufficient to satisfy your heart both now and forever. That's the mark of a child of God. It's what it looks like to be elect. And the extraordinary thing about the gospel is that offer is open right now, today. If you're a Christian, God loves you. And he set his divine affection upon you. God loves you. That's not just a nice phrase to stick on a bumper sticker for your car. That's a truth that's got to be at the heart of your existence. Deep in your soul, even in your bones, that I'm loved by God. And if you're going through hard times right now as a Christian... What you need is this deep theology that God has chosen you before the foundation of the earth, that he set his divine affection on you and he will not let you go. You need this deep theology. You may, in your struggle, let your theology interpret your life rather than reinterpret your life Sorry, one of the dangers when we're struggling is that we let our life interpret our theology. But what we need to do in the struggles of life is let our theology reinterpret our life. He set his love on you, not because of any merit in you. He's done it for his glory. Whatever you're going through, Whatever you're going through, however much it might feel like things are falling apart, if you belong to Jesus, open your eyes and see what you could never have thought or imagined. He loves you. He loves you. God has set his love on you. And as we close, just thinking about the doctrine of unconditional election, here's just a few things that will change us as we live as God's people today. To be chosen, not because of any merit, not because of any potential in us, but simply because of God's love. To be chosen is the motivation we need for gospel holiness and godliness. We want to walk as God's people, worthy of our calling. I want to make my election and calling sure. To be chosen gives us confidence in evangelism. Somebody proclaimed the gospel to me and so that I would put my faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so as we go out with the good news of the gospel, we go out to our city, our suburb. And as we proclaim it, God's people will be called out. And the elect of God are not some tiny little clique. No way. God's elect are an entire glorious company of men and women from across the globe, from all nations, a crowd of billions, as numerous as the stars, as multitudinous as the sand on the sea. And to be chosen 
means no enemy, no personal Edom will ever ultimately take us out. Because God will never leave us nor forsake us. God is for us. See, when things are at their bleakest, says Malachi, knowing you're loved, knowing you're chosen, is a great place to stand. And if we know this, we have everything we need to know to get out of bed, to face Monday, Tuesday, this week, to face whatever comes our way. Let's pray together and give thanks to God. Let's pray. How have you loved us? Father, we thank you that in your sovereign mercy, you've given us in Christ everything. Father, thank you for the reminder in Malachi. Thank you for the reminder throughout your scriptures of the way you chose the people for yourself, not because of their potential, their performance, not because of their merits. And Father, we thank you that you chose a a people for yourself, even in the midst and in spite of their flaws and foibles and failures, to be your people simply because of your mercy, your compassion and your grace. Father, we give you great thanks for the Lord Jesus. Father, thank you that he died in our place. He lived the life we should have lived. He died the death that we deserve so that we can be part of your family through faith. And so, Father, we pray with thanks for your love for us. Thank you for choosing us. Father, may the reminder of your grace-filled choosing of us motivate us to live lives of godliness and holiness. Father, may the reminder this morning motivate us in our evangelism as we seek to share the good news with our family and friends and colleagues. Father, remind us that your elect people are from every tribe and people and language and nation on the planet. And we thank you, Father, that your electing us, your choosing us, means that we'll never be kicked out of your hands. Thank you, Father, that no enemy can ultimately take us out, for we are safe and secure in you. And Father, I pray this morning for my brothers and sisters here this morning who are struggling, who are in pain. Father, for those we know who perhaps are living in that place of a functional gap between what the scriptures say and what their life looks like. I pray, Father, for them this morning that afresh they would throw themselves on your grace, be reminded of your deep, deep love for them. How have you loved us? Help us all to look to Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church, North Adelaide. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church, North Adelaide, visit us at citylight.church slash North Adelaide.